there's certain phrases which are used more as sort of marketing terms like balancing hormones that don't have evidence behind them and are really are really sort of almost to draw women in you've got a real pain point there you know really struggling with PCOS we know there's a huge amount of unmet need um, with things like PCOS and the menopause and it's people that it's women that are are really desperate for answers they're desperate for support and I think they will do anything and and it's really appealing to think that you could balance your hormones by just eating broccoli or having a green smoothie or taking something and I think um, it's almost sort of preying on the sort of you know people that are in a really vulnerable position because they are are really desperate for support and help. I founded the BeWell Collective, a not-for-profit organisation that aims to bring nutritional education and mental health support to the fashion and creative industries. I believe the topics we discuss throughout our series are relevant to whatever industry that you work in or any issues that you might be facing. Because as a collective, together, we are stronger. Welcome to this week's episode of Live Well, Be Well with your host, Sarah Ann Macklin. For any of you that tuned in last week, you would have heard me talk about women's health and polycystic ovary syndrome. We discussed all the different things that hormonal balance can cover and PCOS was one of the main topics. So to follow on from last week's episode, I wanted to bring on a fantastic nutritionist whose speciality is women's health, especially regarding fertility and PCOS. Now this episode really focuses on women's health and nutrition and how certain lifestyle interventions can really help people who are struggling with PCOS. PCOS affects one in 10 women in the UK. So if you have it, you aren't alone, but it can feel incredibly devastating to anyone's self-esteem and quality of life. So to help me explore this further, I have a fantastic nutritionist on today called Harriet Home. She's also a medical doctor, but she retrained as a nutritionist because her passion for women's health grew from her own personal experiences. I really hope that you enjoy Harriet's and I conversation regarding diet, nutrition, and hormonal balance. Harriet, welcome to Live Well, Be Well today. Thank you so much for coming on to the podcast. How are you? Thank you. It's an absolute pleasure to join you. So uh, thanks so much for inviting me. I am absolutely thrilled to have you on because women's health is a huge topic of conversation, especially regarding my listeners. And I did a podcast last week focusing on women's health and there were still so many answer questions and we never even got to the topic of nutrition. And I know that this is your field regarding women's health and nutrition and dietary advice. So would you be able to give my listeners a brief introduction to exactly who you are and what you do? Sure. So um, back a long time ago now, near so 20 years ago, I trained as a doctor. So I did medicine at Cambridge University. And then I went on to have a career in the NHS as a doctor, as a paediatric oncologist, ultimately. And I stepped out and did a PhD on the genetics of a rare type of bone cancer. So lots of um, work in the laboratory, understanding research. And and then I decided that medicine wasn't the right fit to go back. And instead, I became a registered nutritionist with the Association for Nutrition. 
I now lecture as a nutritionist. Um, I have my own um, consultancy business and I'm really passionate about sharing evidence-based nutrition um, to help people for for not just uh, the here and now, but also their long-term health. That's It's so refreshing to hear that because so many doctors don't actually get very long in nutrition training, do they at all? Is it about, am I right in saying about seven hours or, or a couple of days through the whole of the the time of the seven years that you're learning medical training? Oh, uh, I wouldn't know the exact figure, but certainly it is increasing. There's a, a big drive and a big push for that now. Um, and some, you know, really great teaching is happening now. But uh, back 20 years ago, there was no nutrition training at all. Um, I think there's lots of just, uh, you know, sort of new evidence and science is coming out about how important nutrition is. And, and also about the microbiome um, and the microbiota and how that really does affect long-term health. And I think it's something that doctors and medical students really do need to learn about, but it's trying to fit that in um, to an already really packed um, packed course. I know that when I was at uh, when I was at Cambridge, the second year of the med- medical degree was actually, I think it was had the most facts. Well, it was in the world record book for the most facts of any degree course in the world. So I, you can see why I think um, trying to squeeze more in is quite challenging. Um, but at the same time, it's really important. And um, we've got you know, a burdening uh, society that's undergoing an you know, obesity crisis. Um, it's just worsening year on year. I'm sure that the pandemic won't have helped a lot of people. And I think you know, taking that long term um, preventative approach is really important. But at the same time, the NHS is only a finite resource, you know, already enough of the resources and that that's, you know, both the money and the people are already tied up um, fighting, you know, the immediate fires of today. And um, and that's why I think that, you know, sometimes they're just, uh, you know, there aren't the resources or the, the time to to help people do that sort of more long term preventative stuff where where people can. That's fantastic. But, um, you know, with time, hopefully that will change. And so what was it for you? Because you were ahead of the curve when you went to go and study nutrition, obviously doing your medical degree and then working in the NHS. What was it for you that really captured nutrition for you to go and study that further and now lecture in it? Um, So I think for me, it was the the microbiome. Um, Really, my focus had been cancer genetics and understanding a lot about genetics and epigenetics and uh, the sort of interactions with the environment and drugs. And to think that the gut organisms that live inside us that outnumber our own somatic cells could actually have such a, a, a sort of impactful role in how we metabolize drugs such as chemotherapy in our response to cancer um, really, uh, really fascinated me. And I think our understanding is really in its infancy. We have so much more to understand about it. And, and I think that's what sort of sparked my interest in it, really. And, and sort of I'd seen the impacts of nutrition um, working as a, you know, in neonates with tiny premature babies, doing paediatric oncology, and just sort of kids and their diet. And, and I think it was sort of um, a combination of those factors, really, that sort of, uh, that I, I chose to leave and, and to focus on it, really. Because you've really focused, haven't you, around pregnancy and fertility and the menopause. What was it about women's health that really captured you to, to kind of focus on that area more so? 
Um, I, th- I think it's a combination of factors. Obviously, I'm female myself, and mm. I've been through a number of these sort of almost sort of not rites of passage, but sort of journey. And I think it's a really a, a sort of journey through life when your your body and your nutritional needs change. But you know, when I had my children, I wasn't aware because I didn't have the knowledge that your breast as when you're breastfeeding, you need more calcium or you need different nutrients during pregnancy. Um, and, and I think it's, I thought, well, if, you know, I as a doctor don't know that, I'm sure there are an awful lot of other people that don't know that as well. And it's about trying to empower women with that knowledge, really. And I think in this, lots of these things have almost been a bit of a taboo as well about sort of the menopause, um, about how to help women during the menopause, about, um, you know, sort of resurgence now, people taking HRT, but sort of knowing what those nutritional things you can do how you can prevent long-term you know um, cardiovascular risk how you can improve your bone health they're really important um and I, I think it's really trying to sort of trying to, to to educate people and provide them with that knowledge is really knowledge is power and it's providing that in an unbiased you know evidence-based way yeah and that is critical i think it is so important because especially last week when we focus on women's health and menstruation and period health and our hormones and and lots of things that are quite topical at the moment such as PMS, premenstrual syndrome mm. and now PMDD as well which is a bit more severe than PMS that people you know it really affects people's quality of lives. There's a lot of discussion and a lot of things as well headlined in the media around hormonal health, a buzzword that I think both you and I touched upon when we spoke before recently, which was hormonal balance. Um, Mm. And being a nutritionist myself, I see a lot of fads in the headline and I see a lot of people getting sucked into certain topical things of the month where it says if you have this, it will really help improve your mood or help balance your hormones. So before we get on to really like what, what is it if you aren't hormonally balanced should I say you know what is the problem around people feeling that they can cure themselves through diet and balancing their hormones is that can we really do that or not well I so I find this a topic that's um that's actually quite quite a sad topic I actually find it because I feel that um that there are certain phrases which are used more as sort of marketing terms like balancing hormones that don't have evidence behind them and are really are really sort of almost to draw women in you've got a real pain point there you know really struggling with PCOS I mean, you know there's a huge amount of unmet need um with things like PCOS and the menopause and it's people that it's women that are are really desperate for answers they're desperate for support and I think they will do anything and and it's really appealing to think that you could balance your hormones by just eating broccoli or having a green smoothie or taking something and I think um it's almost sort of preying on the sort of you know people that are in a really vulnerable position because they are are really desperate for support and help and um, so that's my bugbear with balancing hormones, and and also the fact that people come to me and they've had you know a whole list of blood tests, including sort of serum, rhubarb, and everything else, you know, these uh, in the hope of balancing their hormones, which isn't really possible. And I think that um, no food is going to balance your hormones. The closest you can get to it is reducing your um, insulin resistance through a number of factors with your diet and that that can help you know polycystic ovary syndrome um 
but no specific food will balance your hormones. No specific diet will balance your hormones. It's about having you know, long-term healthy eating goals that um, will reduce your overall insulin resistance and help your PCOS in that, in that way. I think that's such critical information. So before we get on to kind of the lifestyle versus medication of PCOS, can we first of all just describe to listeners who might not know what PCOS is, which is polycystic ovary syndrome, can you describe what that actually is and how people might be aware if they have it or not? Like, What are the first symptoms of this? Sure. So polycystic ovary syndrome or PCOS is, is actually quite common. It's um, it's present in uh, sort of between 10 to 20 percent of women of reproductive age, but a large number of them, up to 70 percent of them remain undiagnosed. And it's um, a relatively common condition that does affect the functioning of a women's ovaries. And we don't really know why some people get it and other people don't. It does seem to run in family. So there's maybe some hereditary process going on. Um, And um, there are a number of symptoms that can can often just sort of be, um, I think, not that easy to to realize you have them until you start trying for a baby and that's often when a lot of people you know are, are diagnosed so um the symptoms are sort of hyperandrogenism so that's um that higher testosterone uh, profile and it, that leads you to have things like oily skin acne um hair on the your sort of face chest back buttocks and that's called hirsutism so that's more sort of a male pattern hair growth and that can be really challenging for women Um, and then hair loss sort of male pattern balding and that distribution and then irregular periods which obviously is that sort of trigger for many women and trying to get pregnant and and then excessive weight gain it can be you know really challenging Absolutely. I have definitely had quite a few friends and family members that have been affected by PCOS. And, uh, you know, I'm very happy to share like my own experience. I spoke to you on the phone and said, actually, you know, I haven't, well, when I was younger, I had some cysts that had burst and they told me that I had polycystic ovary syndrome. Um, and actually going forward, I never had any of the symptoms, the things that you've all just described that all of my friends that had the syndrome were really experiencing and really suffering. And mm. I think it's really important just to highlight the difference between maybe having cysts on your ovaries and polycystic ovary syndrome. Would you be able to give some light on that? Sure. So up to a third of women actually have um, cysts on their ovaries, which um are not enough to meet the criteria for polycystic ovary syndrome. So there is um, the, what's called the Rotterdam criteria, which requires you to have two out of the three, um, two out of three of the symptoms. So either biochemical changes, those um, the phenotypic changes. So that means the sort of hairiness, um, the male pattern balding, acne, oily skin or the um, ultrasound features. So if you've got ultrasound features, you've got those cysts, you either need to have um, the the biochemical changes on your blood tests, or you need to have the phenotypical changes. So the the hairiness, the oiliness, acne, those kind of things. It's not enough just to have um, those cysts on on your ovaries. And that doesn't mean that you have PCOS. There probably is a spectrum here and, uh, you know, of of people that some just have the ultras, uh, some just have ultrasound changes and then others will have, you know, the other changes as well. Some will have all three, some will just have two. 
Um, but, but really a large number of people, so up to a third of, of women have those changes on ultrasound and that doesn't, shouldn't impact you getting pregnant or, um, or having problems like because that is a that is a real fear for so many people isn't it i think as soon as you might be told that you have polycystic ovary syndromes or even you know cysts on your ovary there's a real fear for so many women to think does this inhibit my chances of getting pregnant you know what would you Mm. say to anyone who maybe has been diagnosed with pcos or been told about this um and their and their worries around fertility um, so I, I think I would have to say I'm not a fertility specialist and I'm not a GP or um, a gynecologist. And I think in that regard, it's really important to go to your GP, um, have that medical assessment, be referred to to gyne. Um, but at the same time, you know, that diet plays a really important role. There are limited treatment options. And I would, you know, say optimise your diet and your weight as best you can, because, um, there's there's good news in that you know sort of even a very small amount of weight loss sort of your five percent of your total body weight can reduce the risk of you know not just health issues like type two diabetes and, and high cholesterol but also increase your risk of um, not increase your risk but so increase your chances of getting pregnant which is great so just you know I, I think it's about those healthy choices um about the dietary um recommendations which i'm sure we'll come on to mm-hmm. and 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 having that holistic care seeing your gp you know, talking about the nutrition and seeing gynecologists if you need to and so before we get on to the big topic which is going to be the food that helps support positive ovaries and hormones and you know so on and so forth the women's health you mentioned insulin i'd love just to talk about this first of all before we get on to this because it's a big part that plays a role in polycystic ovary syndromes why does insulin play such a large factor in pcos sure so insulin is a really important signaling molecule that um that tells our body our sugar level in our blood is too high and it it signals to your muscles your fat and your liver cells that they need to increase the amount of sugar they're taking up from the bloodstream and store it and so your your blood sugar is kept in a very, very tight, narrow range um, where it's never too high or too low. It's just within that normal range. And that's a really important mechanism. It's called a homeostatic mechanism where it, your body always has ways of, of either bringing your sugar level down or bringing your sugar level back up so it stays within that range. Um, and that's really important for the way our body functions. And people that aren't able to do that have um, diabetes and therefore they have medications in order to bring them back down into that tight range and try to avoid the side effects associated with it. But women with um, polycystic ovary syndrome um, have some degree of insulin resistance and that means that their body doesn't listen to those signals in the same way um, as someone who doesn't have PCOS. And so uh, they're more likely to gain weight and more likely to have problems um, with higher blood sugars and, and that then leads on to the increased risk of developing type 2 diabetes and high cholesterol and certain cancers. And insulin is tied up in, um, is involved in or sort of all these sort of signaling molecules and hormones are involved in, um, in ovulation. And then that's one of the problems that, um, that obviously trying to get pregnant if you're unable to ovulate um, which is often seen in PCOS, then that's one of the sort of problems. So that's why even a sort of modest change in, in body weight can increase your insulin sensitivity and can enable you to ovulate. So for anyone struggling with PCOS, 
um, that's listening to this and you've been mentioning insulin, what kind of diet would you recommend? Um, so I think there are a number of factors. And I think if you sort of go, uh, first of all, sort of generic, you know, sort of things that are general things that anyone can do, um, I would always recommend people to eat more fruit and vegetables, uh, swap from refined carbohydrates to whole grain carbohydrates. They're so important, not just for fiber, um, but also um, all the sort of mi- many more nu- micronutrients in whole grains than there are in the refined grains. And then um, have quality fats. And there's good evidence that um, that avoiding things like trans fats um, is good for your health in general, but is also better specifically for people with PCOS because it's related to um, glucose control and insulin resistance. And then um, those other quality fats. So trying to have things like avocados, olive oil, seeds, nut butters. They've all got those unsaturated um, fats. Uh, and, and trying to avoid saturated fats, so that's things like um, coconut and, uh, and and those fats found in meat and uh, products, um, because that has been shown to have uh, improved glycemic control. So you're you're reducing that insulin resistance by having those healthier fats. And then um, lean protein, um, so that's either lean meat or plant-based protein. Um, I'd say that's you know, better for, for everybody, really. But specifically um, with with PCOS, there's been evidence to show that if you swap out some of those animal based um, proteins and instead have plant based proteins, that, that does actually improve glycemic control. So that's insulin resistance, those testosterone levels, those hormones that are causing some of those um, those things like acne and the spottiness and the hairiness and also improves cholesterol levels. And then um, really important to have a sort of regular diet. There's been some studies that have looked at people that are snacking um, with PCOS and the sort of how they structure their diet. And there is evidence that people who um, eat a more regular diet with fewer snacks probably have a healthier diet and they are also um, more likely to have a better insulin sensitivity. So that would be another thing to try to do as well. And then I think um, I know that ketogenic diets are really popular in PCOS and just to sort of uh, caveat what they are. So ketogenic diets are where you cut out carbohydrates to force your body into a state of ketosis where it's not metabolizing in the normal way with sugar, but it's it's forming ketone bodies instead. And that was really invented for children with intractable epilepsy and and wasn't ever invented as a a weight loss diet and it was invented really with very specific criteria Um, so if the child wasn't responding um, to the diet and their epilepsy their fits weren't improving you know they they would come off it and it was only ever designed really for a maximum of two years so much of the research has, has been done in children with epilepsy not in the sort of wider population but there certainly have been studies um, longer term studies in adults who, are, who who don't have epilepsy that have shown that if you cut down carbohydrate um, and replace it with animal fat, it actually increases your risk of mortality and morbidity. So that increases your risk of being unwell and, and a higher risk of early death. Whereas those people who substituted the carbohydrates with plant based fats and proteins actually had a lower risk of dying and a lower cardiovascular risk. And I say this because um, there's evidence that having a low carbohydrate diet can be better 
or short-term control of blood sugar, um, especially in type 2 diabetes. But I think really we don't know what the long-term role of a ketogenic, so a low-carbohydrate diet is. And I would say that if you are going to try it, um, you need to to think about really not doing something where you just swap swap all those carbohydrates for your bacon and cheese. You're swapping them for plants instead, um, and 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 see how you know it helps. See if it helps. Um, but we really don't know what if there is long term benefit and and what the long term changes are. With, with still more research is needed. I think that's such an important point to pop in there about the low carbohydrate diet because it's definitely one that I was going to ask you because again PCOS and the relation to low carbohydrate diet there is evidence there but I Mm. think again you know that can be very misconstrued unless you're getting it from a dietitian who specializes in this and is working with you on that plan Mm. you know regarding the ketogenic diet absolutely it was obviously done with regarding children and epilepsy and when you actually look at that ketogenic diet with children that had epilepsy the amount of high saturated fat that they're having is so much more than what you're seeing in the media of ketogenic diet. Mm. You know, things are dipped in MCT oil. You know, that's how they're making their food. And so when you actually look at how it is delivered in hospitals, it's very mm. different to the mainstream ketogenic diet that, that we're seeing. It's more just a high fat diet, actually. You can't mm. normally even call it a ketogenic diet if you're looking at it from a clinical side. Um but again, there's so many other problems that come with that, such as fibre. And you, you, you are such a huge advocate, obviously, of, of in, in, you, in your research is, is into the gut health. Mm-hmm. And we know how important that fibre is for our gut. And so there's all of these caveats that, yes, a lower carbohydrate diet can be very beneficial for PCOS, but you have to then be aware that your fibre intake is going to be much lower, which, again, is food for our, our microbes. So... Again, it's very interlinked in in other problems that could come up as a as a caveat of that. So with anyone who maybe is listening to this and they are following a lower carbohydrate diet, how would you advise them to get their fibre from other sources if they are cutting out carbohydrates? No, so I agree with everything you've just said there. And I think it is really important um, to, to think sort of in a wider, bigger picture about the ketogenic diet that there are significant limitations with it. And fibre is certainly one. And we know that um, we should all be eating about 30 grams of fibre a day. And not is fibre, fibre isn't just good for gut health, but actually it's got a link with um, colorectal cancer. So, you know, for every, there's a dose response to every gram of fibre you have, the lower your risk of of colorectal cancer long-term. And I think that that's, uh, you know, really important. And also that it's really challenging to, to, to do long term, it was never designed to be done long term, and it really um, potentially, you know, encourages really restrictive eating and disordered eating, which I think is another important problem as well with it. Yeah. Um, so if you've got, if you are going to do it, I think you know, do it under, do do it with some help and some guidance, um, and and also really swap swap to those plants that's that's going to be where you're going to get your fiber fiber from and you know have the lean lean plant-based protein and fats and and avoid things like cheese and bacon and avoid things like the atkins diet to be honest um you know whole grains obviously are sort of banned in in low carbohydrate diets so you, you have to get them from somewhere else i think it's about fruit and vegetables but you know even then it's really difficult because you know lots of fruit and vegetables are, are banned in low carb diets as well so then it's sort of nuts and seeds 
and that's quite difficult to get the amount of fiber that you need um, and also pretty repetitive and restrictive which is why I don't generally don't advocate um, cutting out a whole food group because I think it's it's really hard to maintain long term and if you have PCOS it's, it's not a problem for six months it's you know a problem for the rest of your life and I think it's um, it's very restrictive and challenging and I think it's about having an approach that you can that's sustainable and you can you know it, eat well and enjoy eating because you know, we should all enjoy eating as much as possible um, for long term. I think it's that's such an important point, isn't it, to make about food is also about enjoyment. And if mm. you are being too restrictive, essentially at the end of the day, that will dampen your quality of life because it will be such an impending thought on your mind all the time. Mm. Yeah. Um, and I do know from my sister who has, I'm sure she won't mind me mentioning this, seeing as I'm not mentioning her name, um, has PCOS and she had gestational diabetes and she was pregnant. And she mm. had to be so aware of what she could and couldn't have on her diet, especially during pregnancy with her insulin levels. Mm. You know, and it, for her, it became such a big thing. Every time we went out, there were so many foods that she could and couldn't eat. And I think there is that fine balance, isn't there, at the end of the day, of your quality of life is, is so important regarding this. And, and that takes you really nicely onto our mood and how you know our hormones can really affect how we're feeling so people might have more pms or pmdd from a nutritional point of view you know what advice would you give to people that are suffering with, with lower mood than, than usual so i think it's um unfortunately something that's really difficult because a number of people have it I mean, up to five percent of women of childbearing age have you know some kind of mood disorder around the time of their you know, just before their period in a certain luteal phase of the menstrual cycle and I think um there are no good things that treat it really um you know, there's a number of supplements have been tried but there's no good evidence really that any of those are particularly helpful um I mean the one thing that might be a benefit is vitamin d but really we should all have um sufficient levels of vitamin d anyway for for you know for a number of other health reasons so i think that would be the sort of thing that i i would would say really unfortunately we don't really know why it happens other than it's probably related to sort of um the ovaries being particularly sensitive to steroids um but we there are no good treatments for it there are no really good supplements that that work there's lots of supplements out there that are sort of touted to work but there's no evidence to support them and i think unfortunately it's sort of one for the future that we need to to you know solve it in the future but there's no specific diet that's going to um to sort that out other than you know, eating healthily which will improve your insulin um you know keep your insulin sensitivity at a good level and um and will help your overall health but sadly um there isn't a quick fix with that one even though i think a lot of the time it's far sexier on social media <laughs> to say you know, eat your broccoli and your pms or will magically disappear or whatever you know other tea or evening primrose oil or, or anything else sadly oh, there's that's that's what no i want evidence. to bring on so many of my friends i remember years ago were all supplementing with primrose oil because it was a big topic of 
of mm. um, headlines that month that evening primrosal can really help with your hormones. Mm. Can you please give the evidence on this? And I'm going to send this. I'm going to send this straight to all of them that are taking it. <laughs> well, and sadly, there's no evidence. You know, there's no <laughs> clinical trials to support support any benefit and you know I think you and I talked before about how important the placebo effect is that um that in a large in a sort of well it's still a minority but I think it up to 30 percent of people actually have a physiological change so you can actually measure the changes um with a placebo so that's a sugar pill that has no active ingredients so I, I think you know my feelings on placebo are are actually this placebo effect is really important if if taking a placebo you feel great wonderful if it's not doing you any harm um but i think you know understand that it is a that there is no evidence to support it or you know understand that there is a placebo effect and the reason why you might feel great is because um you decided you were going to have a focus on on something else you were going to do some exercise as well or you you know something else positive in your life has happened and that happened to coincide with you starting evening primrose oil um and and so that's that's what i would would say really with it that um that sadly there's no evidence that any of these supplements really work and there are an awful lot of people out there that um propel these sort of nutrition myths that uh all about all sorts of things you know this included like for example that bone broth is better than breast milk and things and mm. i think you just have to be really careful where where you get your information from and uh and and you know check it that it is supported by some evidence really that would be my advice it's so it is so true because i have such a bug to bear with stores such as Holland and barrett mm. or certain stores that sell an awful lot of supplements and I get people coming to me in clinic with maybe around I mean once and this is this is the truth 20 different supplements were laid in front of me first of all I think I had a bit of an anxiety attack thinking please please say you're not mixing the same supplement but in different doses across a variety Mm. um but how can people navigate the supplement market you know what can people look out for from your advice um i'd love to know as a nutritionist and as a doctor you know because we are constantly reading that mm. this supplement or this supplement and again that's my problem they're all isolated um mm. will give you this benefit but how can people really trust what supplements are right for them and what not and which ones are more fatty than others what's your advice so yes i agree that the supplement world is is quite well, for me, it's quite murky, but it, it sort of goes hand in hand with another problem in that um, the title nutritionist is not a protected title. And that means that anybody with no qualifications can set up as a nutritionist you know, today or tomorrow and start seeing people start having their own account on social media and start propelling um anything they want into into the world of you know headlines. And people I you know certainly I don't think most people know that. And I think that sort of it's far sexier to say this supplement uh, can cure you of this ailment than it is to say there's no evidence for that. And so these sort of headlines you know, travel, they you know, become viral content and they sell papers and they sell, you know, they, they're on social media, they're, they know everything. It's much more interesting, much more newsworthy. Um, and secondly, I think that... Um, for supplements, it's a totally different world to to medicines and the way it's regulated. And 
and the the claim there's sort of softer re- regulations on the some of the claims that can be made um but it's also it's really difficult to know there are no sort of it's really difficult to know the quality of a lot of these things there's no quick fix or or even you know longer term way of or, or to deep dive as often people say of knowing what is a quality supplement looks like there are no indices and no outcome measures of knowing what quality means and so look that's a question that i'm often asked I, you know i wonder if you are as well that sort of mm. you know how do i know what a quality supplement looks like and for me there is no answer to that you know there's some answer with things like um omega-3 but but for in general most people i don't think need to be taking supplements you know there are clear clear guidance of who needs supplements if you everyone should be having vitamin d in england during the autumn and winter months every pregnant woman who's trying to get pregnant should be taking folic acid not folate because that's where the evidence is and then um and then vegan if you're vegan take b12 because you probably have low levels and I think that's it. Um, I don't think that people need a multivitamin when they're pregnant. I think there, a lot of these, a lot of these supplements sort of sold on people's fears and worries, and also that it's an awful lot easier uh, to pop a pill and think, oh well, you know, I've, I've got all my nutrients. I've, I don't need to worry about my diet. I'll, you know, I have a multivitamin, or it'll make me healthier, or give me energy, or give me you know, all of these things that uh, are, are claimed and. Um, I think that for the most part, they are unfounded. Mm, absolutely. And you said the only one which I know that we'll talk about another time for your episode, but you mentioned Omega-3. Mm. And I th- know someone's going to be listening to this thinking, oh, the only one that she's mentioned is Omega-3. <laughs> so could you elaborate on that one just so everyone, because I know that my listeners are very much avid listeners of brown Omega-3 as well. So I'd love for you to explain how they can navigate that supplement market. Sure. So again, this is, I mean, you, I know that you're very into if specialised in omega-3, but um, I, I think for me, I would look for um, one that has got triglycerides in it. Uh, and I think that's a sort of marker that of, of greater quality. And that, I think that's probably about as far as it goes, really. I think from then onwards, it's quite difficult to tell whether, you know, krill is better or this one's better because they've all got sort of negative pros and cons it's really difficult to tell about the manufacturer um, and you know possibly a lot of them are manufactured in the same factory you know we don't know um, so I think it's really challenging um, and, and that's one of the reasons why I think that where possible we should be eating a whole food diet um, without supplements and there's good evidence as well to suggest that that eating oily fish for example is actually better for you than having an omega-3 supplement so absolutely it's not just the omega-3 it's how it's you know tied up with the rest of it in the same way that we aren't just eating nutrients we're eating food and um and so that's that's my my feeling on it so it'd be great to hear if you've got any anything different no I I completely agree I mean I'm food first and I think you should only be supplementing if you are deficient because it's a supplement Mm. because you are deficient in your diet so you mentioned some really key ones there such as vitamin d within the winter months and obviously if you're darker skinned there's a reason for that because your melanin's higher so the efficiency of the uva towards your skin is obviously much lower so you might be needing a vitamin d supplement through the summer months if you're not up to the 
the correct level and we really struggle to gain it from our diet so that's why but again the vegan diets b12 again you mentioned that and again maybe omega-3 in a vegan diet if you're not eating oily fish mm. um but i completely agree with you that food is first and i think where we've got to in nutrition and i'm sure you probably agree with this is we look at so many nutrients in isolation but actually mm. they all work in synergy together and we shouldn't mm. be having high doses of one nutrient because again if they all work together so if we're overloading ourselves with one vitamin you can imagine the kind of the after effects of that within our body how it metabolizes they all need to work in synergy together and i think that is such an important reason why we see in clinical trials that mm. the more significant results come from the food from the food um with foods first as opposed to the supplements because again we don't know on the levels we don't sit around you know what the other lifestyle factors people are living so are they more stressed mm. you know what other foods are they eating all of these kind of things have such a big impact on on the results to studies and i think again there's also around toxicity with certain supplements that people aren't aware of. And it's quite hard, doesn't say that you can't, but it's much harder to get that level of toxicity from food as it mm. is to supplements. And I think that's a really important kind of message to drive home to, to lots of people regarding that. Uh, yeah, no, I, I agree with that completely. And and also it's just become quite trendy for people to think, oh, well, I'm just going to take 50,000 units of vitamin D. Um, well, vitamin D is, you know, fat soluble. So that means that you store it. It's not excreted. If you take too much of it, your risk of toxicity. And for most people, you know, that's a huge amount. A lot of people are deficient in vitamin D and it, you know, maybe is not a problem. But, you know, I, I think it's about about knowing that just because it's a supplement and it's not available and it's available not on prescription you can go and pick it up in your local you know supermarket or or you know health food shop that they can still have side effects you know you can mm -hmm. have too much of these things they mm -hmm. can cause problems just in the same way that you know vitamin a causes problems in pregnancy if taking up your know, fish oil you need to make sure that you don't have vitamin a in it if, if you're having you know, pregnancy safe fish oil yeah. things like that so i think um in the same way, probiotics as well, you know, there's evidence to suggest that there are side effects from them. And I, th I think it's really understanding that just because it's a supplement doesn't mean it ris it's risk-free, doesn't mean it can only benefit your health. And and is no substitute for a you know, food first, a healthy diet, a healthy balanced diet. And I think that's really important. Yeah, thank you for clarifying that, Harriet. And so... I mean, we obviously got a bit diverted there on supplements but for very good reason. Bringing it back to, to PCS, and, and this is one that I see women really struggle with, and I think it's a really big error to, to discuss. I mean, one, we're nutritionists, so weight loss is, is a, probably one of the ones that we, we, we speak about a lot in clinic. People come to us and want to lose weight in a healthy way, but women with PCS really do struggle to lose weight. Um, you know, what advice do you give here regarding nutrition and maybe lifestyle factors and, and exercise? You know, if people are thinking, oh, I am actually being much more aware of what I'm eating, but I just can't shift this weight. You know, what advice can you, can you give to these women? Um, so I think it's probably a combination of factors that, um, that, that really we know that diet plays a huge role. Um, and that what used to just be before was that it was energy in equals sort of energy out. And if there was a surplus, then you, you'd gain weight. 
that we now know that the microbiota play a huge role in, in weight, you know, steady weight and weight gain and weight loss. And there have been um, really interesting studies in, in mice that have shown that um, if you do what's called a fecal transplant, so that's take poo from an obese human and put it into the gut of um, a mouse on the same diet, they, they quite significantly gained weight. And that can be reversed with transplanting the feces from a lean human, and then they will lose weight on the same diet. So we know now that um, not just what your calorie and what your you know total energy uh, content of your food is, but actually what would be just as important, if not more, is your microbiota. So I think it's a combination of things, having a healthy diet, optimizing your gut microbiota, and that's things like all those fruit and vegetables, the whole grains, um, which really help to, to feed them, and then um, cutting out things like trans fats, sweeteners, and then adding in um, fermented food like uh, kefir, kombucha, um, uh, kimchi, you know, miso, all of those are, are really great for helping to, to nourish your gut and replenish them. So that's, I think, the sort of dietary changes. And then on top of that, um, exercise is really important. And it's about trying to get um, a regular schedule where you're having you know, 30 minutes of exercise on at least five times a week. And I think if you combine those things together, um, that that will give you your greatest chance of, of succeeding. Yeah, I think, I mean, I always say you can't outrun a bad diet, which I think is quite mm. important because a lot of people can say, I'm doing all of this exercise and I'm not losing weight. And, and it is as important to merit mm. your diet with that as well. Um, and you obviously mentioned about gut health and you did just touch upon probiotics so just to finish for anyone that's thinking well shall I go and take some probiotics then or shall I you know what is it because you hear a lot about probiotics are good for your gut health but actually what would your advice be regarding that with women that are thinking well if I need to start kind of looking after my gut health should I be looking at probiotics or not so I think that probiotics are another really murky field um and I think it's because it's because of a number of reasons, really. So firstly, we know that gut health is, uh, so a healthy gut, gut health is lots of different bacteria. So d diversity and also quantity. And we're still really only beginning to scratch the surface on understanding what that looks like, what that looks like for different people in different locations and different ethnicities or different diets. And, and then probiotics are taking bacteria, um, putting them in a form that means that they're not going to get killed off by the acid in your, your stomach. So they actually reach your larger intestine, which is further down. And, and hoping or, or that, you know, the thought is that they populate the gut and then um, and help replenish some of your, your gut health. But actually, we know that probiotics, as soon as you stop taking them, they, they don't have an effect after it. They were only there during the time that you take them. And the theory is that um, by supplementing, you're adding in these gut bacteria that are then metabolizing some of your, your the food that you're eating. And it's these metabolites that might have the function that might be, you know, helping things. But 
it's very difficult to know which bacteria you're deficient in, what you know the the different sort of how it works as a global picture, um, what the different levels of all the bacteria mean. And I think you know there's some understanding of that, but we're really very much in our infancy with it. And then there's um, there's sort of two things really. That first of all is that the in order to for these products have to be released onto the market, they have to have some kind of evidence that there might be a benefit. And they're done in very targeted studies. So bacteria strain X will be looking at um, a specific indication with very specific outcome measures. So for example, they might give you know bacteria A and look in women with PCOS and see if you know if they become less hairy or you know their acne improves. And it's very, very specific. So there were loads of bacteria probiotics on the market. There are loads um, of different types. There's some just single strands, there's some with uh, strains, with some with lots of strains together. And if you're not taking the right strain at the right dose that was replicating the trial, then you might be taking the completely the wrong strain of bacteria. It might not fit in with the other bacteria you're taking already. And I think we just don't really know enough about it. Um, so there is some evidence that in women with PCOS that taking probiotics might help. Um, but as I said, it's just that you know one trial, a couple of trials um, with very specific strains of bacteria. And so you'd have to replicate those. You'd have to choose those in order for it to possibly be effective. And then also, you know, sort of people used to think that taking probiotics was the way to to help if you had had antibiotics because obviously antibiotics are really important at killing off pathogenic bacteria killing off you know bacteria that are causing you nasty infections or causing a, a clinical concern and while we really need those and they're really important for our health they do have an impact on our microbiota and so the sort of theory is that if you give the microbiota if you take probiotics you can help replenish those but there have now been a couple of studies that have shown that that maybe that isn't the case that actually they might prevent your own body replenishing the microbiota and actually might delay that happening so i think we really need more information we need more research um and and to be clearer that specific probiotics might help but just taking one because their marketing looks great or the packet looks nice or, or because your friend takes it or because an influencer does is not going to be he- so helpful for you that it really is about taking that very specific strain of bacteria and that's such an important thing to highlight because again there's billions and billions and billions of strains and you normally see i mean lactobacillus is the one that you see a lot coming off um in one of the strains that are studied but there's so many billions trillions of strains and I think that is what's really important and again if you are someone that suffers with IBD mm. we know that that can actually be quite detrimental taking a probiotic strain um, if you're not in remission um, so if you are currently having you know if you are having an attack with IBD we know that it's actually more beneficial to stay away from it until you are back and and off your medication again to start taking them so there's so many different so much information I want to say around probiotics and I think that's why it is so important to go and see a specialist who knows a lot about that area because at least you're then having guidance it can be so easy just to walk into a shop and pick up a pick up a pack of any probiotic Mm. and we're not sure really actually if it's going to be 
beneficial or not. So I think that is probably a really, it's really hard because as you say, there's no quick answer to any of this. And it's so much more multifactorial in that sense and individual to each person. That is actually probably the drive home message of this whole podcast is that it's down to that individual and your own state of health that is going to determine whether something is helpful to you or not. And that can be guided by an expert. Absolutely. And it's a really nuanced, it's just nuanced. And I think that's the problem. There's no quick fix solution here. There's no sort of headline. Um, and I think that's, that's really difficult. Yeah, it is. But it's true. <laughs> and I think that is, that is the, one of the most important things it can be. We had this conversation, we can sound quite boring in so many things that we say that we're like, well, no, that's not true. And there's no evidence. And that's kind of the end of the conversation but it the thing Mm. is that is the facts and sometimes it's not as sexy as you say to know that actually the evidence still isn't quite there yet um Mm. but at least people know that hopefully from this podcast a little bit more information regarding women's health women's hormones polycystic ovary syndrome um supplements and probiotics i love how we kind of diverted to that but again all so topical around women's Mm. health um thank you so much for coming on today harriet i could literally chat to you so much more and i know that i'd love to do an episode regarding more on women's health the pregnancy fertility the menopause there's so many but we couldn't get it into the hours episode but until then could you tell all my lovely listeners who i'm sure i've absolutely loved listening to today where they can find you your instagram handles your clinic where can they find out more and if they want to come and see you thank you so much no it's been an absolute pleasure um so I'm healthy eating doctor that's dr and I'm that on Instagram and also my website is the same it's healthy eating doctor.com and I've got my uh, nutrition books on Amazon you can find them under my name which is Harriet Home um, I've got online courses on my website and you can um, get in touch by my website or send me a message on Instagram I'm gonna put and, oh, all I've of got- them in the show notes Thank you. I forgot to say I've got my podcast as well, which you're kindly coming on to. So I've got my Eating for Health podcast, which is a top five nutrition podcast. So and I'm really delighted to have Sarah coming to join me on it. Oh, I'm thrilled to come on. I feel like I'm so happy that I get to talk to you for another hour. Um, and I'm going to put all of that on the show notes for anyone that's been trying to scrabble that down to get your details. I'll make sure I'll pop that on your three fantastic books. And you also have loads of incredible resources for PCOS and beyond of women's health all on your websites please 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 go check them out you have so many great resources um, that are factual and evidence-based so I highly recommend thank you very much indeed thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of live well be well I hope we covered all the things that people needed to hear regarding women's health and if you need any further information please do check the show links I will make sure I will put in all the links that we spoke about within this podcast and until next week I hope that you all live well and be well
Before you go, I have something new to tell you about. There's brand new bonus content waiting for you with every new guest I speak to. These are exclusively for my inner circle of Apple subscribers. To listen now, head to the Live Well, Be Well show page on Apple Podcasts, where you can activate your free trial and you can enjoy the podcast without adverts.